According to a 2017 Pew Research poll, 56% of those polled say it is possible for a person to be good without any sort of religious belief. According to Greg Smith, Pew's Associate Director of Research, God is not a prerequisite for good values and morality. This has given rise to bumper stickers like this. Good without God. You can be good without God. And this is my favorite. Don't worry about those who are good without God. Pity those who need God to be good. The idea of being good without God, or at least the the catchphrase, started within atheist circles. There's even a book written by an atheist named Greg Epstein by this name. However, more and more Christians are beginning to embrace this bumper sticker theology. Pew Research shows the growth of this belief. In 2011, one quarter of evangelical Christians, 26%, said it was possible to be good without God, while now almost a third, 32%, say it is so. One atheist blogger had an explanation for this. He said it's getting to the point where even deeply religious people know someone who's an atheist. Just as we saw with the LGBTQ movement, it becomes a lot harder for religious people to demonize us when they know us. And knowing us poses a direct challenge to the absurd idea that people can't be good without God. But the question, is it true? Can you be good without God? And if not, why not? We're going to look at a passage today that will answer these questions. Open your Bible to Romans chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 9. It's page 859 if you have a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Paul writing says in verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their mouth is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is on their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For the law is the knowledge of sin. The title of the message today is Good Without God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We thank you for the opportunity we have to gather and to study your word. Lord, we, we want to believe what you want us to believe. We want to understand your word and embrace it. Lord, as the the foundation that we build our lives upon as we seek to follow Jesus. So today, help us, Lord, to lay aside any sort of distractions that we may have brought in, any of the cares of life that would 
Hinder us from receiving what you have for us. Father, give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. Uh, and just help us, Lord, to understand your word, to, to believe it and to live it out in our lives. Your Holy Spirit, come and take this message and use it to strengthen us in our walk with you. To help us, Lord, if we don't know you today, to see our need for Jesus. And Lord, for those of us that do know you, let this passage, let it stir up a, a desire in our hearts to tell others about Jesus. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And don't let me be a hindrance in any way to what you want done in our hearts and our lives today. Have your way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Which may be seated. Now, Romans 3 is kind of a reality check for the good without God mindset. And, and Paul's wording, especially in verses 10 through 18, it can seem sort of harsh. I mean, is that an accurate picture of all humanity? Does that really describe every man, woman, boy, and girl in the world? So what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at the arguments Paul makes, and then we're going to examine our world in light of them to see, is it possible to be good without God? Are there people who are good without God? So Paul's first argument is that everyone is unrighteous. Everyone is unrighteous. Now the church at Rome was experiencing division between the Jewish and the Gentile members. As a general rule, Jewish people thought they were better than the Gentiles. Um, Paul addresses this at verse 9. What then? Are we, we being the Jews, are we better than they? What's his answer? Not at all. No, we're not. For as we have previously charged Jews and Greeks, both, they are all under sin. But the phrase under sin, it means to be subject to or under the authority or the dominion of someone or something. Paul's argument in verse 9 is that all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, are all naturally under the dominion of sin. They are slaves to their sinful nature. And because they are slaves to their sinful nature, they are not righteous. Or to put it in our modern context, they are not good. After making that bold statement, Paul uses several passages from the Old Testament to show that this isn't his idea. The idea that, that all are unrighteous and all are under sin and, and none are good. Well, this is what God has always said about humanity. And as Paul shows these different verses that explain this, he also shows a variety of ways that the unrighteousness of humanity is seen. Right? So he starts off by saying people are just naturally unrighteous. But in verse 10, there is none righteous. No, not one. Right? Paul elaborates on this in the first part of verse 11. Right? There is none righteous. There is not one person who is righteous. And then he goes on and says... That no one understands. This is part of the reason why there is none that are righteous is because no one understands. And one of the ways the unrighteousness of humanity is shown is in the lack of understanding about spiritual things particularly. Naturally, people don't understand the depths of their sin. I mean, naturally, most people would not think their sin is any big deal. Naturally, People don't understand how holy God truly is. 
Not for natural people who don't know Jesus. The idea of standing before a holy God doesn't fill them with any sort of fear or terror. Because they just don't understand the holiness of God. Naturally, people don't understand the consequences of sin. But naturally, people just think, my sin is not that big of a deal. So the idea of there being eternal consequences for stuff I've done, that's just, that's nonsense. That's ridiculous. Naturally, people don't understand the horror of what Jesus endured on the cross. Natural people could really honestly kind of care less about what Jesus went through on the cross. They don't understand why He went there, how significant it is, who He was that went to the cross on our behalf. Naturally, people don't understand the love and the grace that was displayed on the cross. They don't see the cross as a testimony of God's love and desire to save them for their sins and give them grace for the things that they have done. Naturally, people don't understand that apathy about Jesus is the same as rejecting Jesus. Naturally, people think that there's a middle ground, that there's a third option that I can. Yes, there are those who receive Jesus and that's great. And there are those who reject Jesus and that's fine for them. But I have a third option. I'm just Jesus is just all right with me. He's not necessary. I don't hate him. I'm just meh about him. And actual people don't understand that you can't take that mindset with Jesus. Jesus said he came to bring a sword. He came to bring division, he says. According to Jesus, you either accept him or you reject him. But those are the only two options available to us. But natural man does not understand that. In the last of verse 11, he, he continues and he says, Not only is there none who understands, but there is, there is none who seeks after God. Now this doesn't mean that, that naturally people don't look for someone or something to make their God. They often do. Rather, the idea is that naturally people never diligently search for the true and the living God of the Bible. Not because the God of the Bible, well, He's holy. The God of the Bible is awesome. The God of the Bible is awe-inspiring. And the God of the Bible makes demands on our lives. He demands to be the supreme object of love and devotion in our lives. So while natural people may seek after a God, they don't want the God of the Bible. They want a God made of Play-Doh. They want a God that they can shape and mold into whatever image gives them the most comfort. They want a God that, that says their sin is okay, but the sin of another is condemnable. They want a God that hates all the same people that they hate. They want a God that makes them feel all warm and fuzzy and would never challenge them on anything they believe or anything they think or anything they would want to do. And this is just another demonstration of the natural unrighteousness of mankind. We're told in verse 12 that all have turned aside. It's interesting, turned aside. It's a word often used uh, in reference to a soldier going the wrong way in battle. Right? So they should be advancing on the enemy and instead they're retreating. Or if you've ever watched a, a kid's basketball game, right? inevitably at some point there's a kid who gets the ball and goes to the wrong hoop to try to score a point. That's the idea here. 
That they're going the wrong way. Now in this case, it means that they're on a path leading away from God instead of on a path that leads them to God. It's very similar to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about the broad and the narrow way. Naturally, people are on the broad way that leads to destruction. Not on the narrow path that leads to life. Now if you take what what Paul says here about they're, they're going the wrong way, and you add that to there's none who understands, what you can find is that there are likely natural people who are believe they're good without God maybe. And they are on the path leading to destruction, but they think they're on the path that leads to life. Now, they may think they're on the path that leads to life because they think they're good. And they may be on the path think they're on the path that leads to life because they are religious in some way or because they're spiritual in some way. But in the end, because they have not received Jesus Christ and they are rejecting Him, they are going the wrong way. They are headed for destruction and not life and have no clue. And it's just a demonstration of the natural unrighteousness of humanity. In verse 12, it says that they have... Together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Now the word for unprofitable is interesting. I'm not sure how it's translated as unprofitable. But it was often used for milk that had soured. It was also pictured of something that was basically had become worthless. The picture is that in in their unrighteousness, natural man... Is unusable to the Lord. The natural unrighteousness of man prevents the person from being used by God to accomplish his will in the world, and that is why they do not do good. No, not one. And again, this is just another demonstration of the natural unrighteousness of man. He goes on, though, people are not only naturally unrighteous, but people are unrighteous in their speech. Their throat, he says in verse 13, is an open tomb. Or if you have a King James, an open sepulcher. Um, Open tomb clearly represents corruption and defilement. But what kind of speech is corrupt and is defiled and demonstrates unrighteousness? Well, he tells us. With their tongues, they have... Practiced deceit. Right? The idea is that deceit is just a continuous action for unrighteous people. They deceive and they keep deceiving. For the unrighteous person, lying, cheating, flattering, and misleading are as natural to their speech as wind is to the panhandle. Not only have they practiced deceit, but the poison of asps is under their list, their list, their lips. The idea is that the tongue of the unrighteous is filled with malice in order to hurt others. The unrighteous person is seen in the way that they use their mouth to malign and to attack and to hurt others. Could be through gossip, could be through personal attacks, could be through lashing out angrily or seeking to degrade someone with their words. But it's all kinds of things that are words that are meant to hurt and it's just a demonstration Of unrighteous speech. Verse 14 says their mouth is full of cursing. And bitterness. Now cursing as it's meant here. Really doesn't refer to using profanity. As much as it does in how we talk about 
other people. Cursing, as the Bible usually typically uses it, doesn't refer to what we might call potty speech as much as it refers to running other people down. Right? When you curse someone, you you just basically you just kind of talk about them like they're dogs. Right? When your mouth is, is filled with, with cursing, you, you run other people down, you criticize them, you, you call them names. You, you might even say you hope bad things happen to them. When your mouth is filled with bitterness, that's, a, that's just a level of anger. Right? A, a person whose mouth is filled with bitterness, they're the person that sees the cloud behind every silver lining. Right, that, that no matter what is said or what happens, they can find a reason why it's not quite right. They're bitter in their hearts and it comes out in their mouth. And all of these kinds of speech, they demonstrate the natural unrighteousness of humanity. And then finally, people are unrighteous in conduct. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Uh, it refers to being people who are quick to become violent. Now, given what it says about shedding blood, I think this is meant to be taken literally as physical violence, not just violent words, but actual physical violence. A person who is quick, quick to become physically violent demonstrates his or her unrighteousness. Destruction and misery are in their ways. An unrighteous person destroys lives and homes and families and churches and marriages and peace and community and friendships and, and, and you name it. And they, they bring ruin to it. Their own soul is filled with turmoil. So they cannot help but bring this misery and destruction wherever they go. And it's just a demonstration of their natural unrighteousness. Says he goes on to say the way of peace they have not known. This is probably one of the reasons that they bring destruction and misery wherever they go. They have no peace, and really, in a lot of ways, I think you can say the people I've known that would be like, that I would say would fall into this category, they have no peace, and it bothers them that other people do. And so. Because their heart is in turmoil and their life is in turmoil, they want to make sure everyone else around them is in turmoil as well. A person who brings strife and turmoil wherever they go demonstrates his or her unrighteousness. And then finally it says that there is no fear of God before their eyes. For the unrighteous person, there is really no concern for God. They, they live as though there is no God to whom they will answer. They feel no responsibility toward God. They are not concerned about God's future justice or God's will in the world right now. They have no, no concern for what God wants for their life on a day-to-day -day basis. They don't care what God has done through His Son. They may be hostile towards God. Or they may just be apathetic. Keep in mind the idea is they just don't care about God. Right? The person who is unrighteous because there is no fear of God before their eyes, they don't have to be the hostile atheist that, that rails against God. They can be what we would call the good moral person who just doesn't see a need for Jesus. That's all that it refers to. God is just not a factor in their lives. Not at all. 
And a person with no concern for God demonstrates his or her unrighteousness. Now, critics of Christianity would say, well, this is just a negative and cynical view of the world. But is it? I mean, is it? I don't know about you, but this is the world I live in every day. Think about what we've seen regarding religious discussions in the last few weeks. I mean, everybody from the Attorney General to reporters on MSNBC have been quoting the Bible. But with most of what's said, can't you conclude that no one understands? I mean, can't you conclude that that no one is really seeking after God, but rather seeking to use God to further their own ends and to win the argument on their behalf? Think about the political discourse that we hear. Couldn't most of what passes for political discussion among the talking heads on TV be described as deceitful? The poison of asps and being filled with cursing and bitterness? Think about what makes the news. Friday, I read a headline for an article about a man who decapitated his mother with his teeth. Every day, the news shows us that the world around us is swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and they have not known the way of peace. But let's bring it a little closer. What about in our immediate world, just right here in in Guyman, in our town? Don't we see these same sort of things among regular people we know? Don't we know people who just refuse to seek after God? Who have no fear of God before their eyes? Who live in, in open rebellion against God and yet just don't care what God has to say about that? Or let's even bring it closer and, and metal. Don't we experience many of these same things in our hearts? Haven't we all turned aside from God's way at one point or another? Hasn't there been times when the poison of asps has been on our lips? Haven't we been deceitful at one time in our life or another? Haven't we let our mouths be filled with bitterness and cursing? I'll be honest. These things have been true of me far more often than I care to admit. Every day, life just demonstrates the natural unrighteousness of humanity. It just demonstrates that people aren't good, particularly without God. But not only is Paul's argument that, that everyone is unrighteous, but also that everyone is guilty. Anytime we start talking about guilt, one of the first mistakes people make is to start comparing themselves to someone else. Right? You've probably heard somebody say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as Bob. Right? Bob from work, you ought to see him. I'm an angel compared to him. It's, it's like the, the old preacher's story about a, two brothers who were heathen, wicked, in their town outlaws. They died. One of them died, and the brother went to the preacher, and he said, I've got a lot of money, and I'll give you all of it. 
when you preach my brother's funeral, you'll say he's an angel. So the preacher gets up to preach and he says, man, the man you see before you, he was an adulterer, he was a cheat, he was a liar, he was violent, he was angry, he was bitter, he stole, but compared to his brother, he was an angel. The problem is, we're trying to be innocent by comparison. It may be that compared to Bob, we're not that bad. Because Bob may well be the, the worst person in, in the panhandle. But Bob isn't the standard. God's law is the standard. Look at what Paul says. So now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So the law has a purpose. And that purpose is to stop self-justification. Right? The, the law is given so that we won't say, well, I, I'm not as bad as Bob. The law is given so that as, as it's studied, as it's looked at, the conclusion that people will come to is, it doesn't matter if I'm as bad as Bob. I'm still guilty to bring all the world guilty before God. So let's take a minute and just look at some of the Ten Commandments to see the legitimate guilt of all humanity. But, so the law says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's a command against misusing God's name in any way. But it would include things like using His name as a cuss word but, or a swear word or as an exclamation of some point. It would include that, but understand, it's not limited to that. It would also include using God's name in, an, in a flippant or insincere way. And it would refer to doing anything that would cause God's name to be dishonored or profaned in the world. That's what it is to take God's name in vain. And then there's honor your father and your mother. Now, to honor your father and your mother, it, it included obedience to them, but it was not limited to that. It also meant to ensure nothing was done to bring shame on them. I'm reminded of a story of a guy from Tulsa. He's a pastor of a church up there. And, and his mom abandoned him and his brother when they were little. And a police officer found him in an abandoned building. And he was... Two and his brother was like one. And they had been alone for so long they were malnourished. And his diaper had actually grown to his little body. Through all of the, the stuff that was growing in it. And that police officer saw them and saved them. And then he took them in and he adopted them. And he was always very careful, he said, how he lived his life. Because after all that man had done for him, after the ways he had saved his very life. He just refused to do anything that would bring dishonor to that name. That's kind of what it is to be, to not take God's name in vain. To just not do anything that would make His name be made light of. Or, I'm, I'm sorry, our parents, good grief. It's going to be a long sermon. Our parents, the same way. Not do anything that would make anyone demean or make light of or bring shame to 
our parents. Now, Sarah Plivier's, no. Uh, for teenagers, I always joke about this with teenagers, but it's true. Right? This would include rolling your eyes. Are right? you talking to your friends on the phone? Are you talking to your friends in public and your parents call? Blah, 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 and you go. <laughs> Dishonored your father and your mother. That, mean that, that, that is what that means. That's a part of what it means. And then, do not commit adultery. Now, this is just about the sanctity of marriage. So, really what it, but what it forbids is any sexual relationship outside of marriage. Any. But this is one of the ones that Jesus takes and He moves it even deeper in the Sermon on the Mount. And He says that, that even having lustful thoughts about someone other than your spouse, that's the spirit behind this law. Now, so it would not only include the physical act of adultery or fornication, but also pornography and, and romance novels and things along those lines. Now, anyone that has violated even one of these three commands, even in the smallest way, they are unrighteous because they are guilty of sin. Right? And that's just three. That's not the whole ten. And this is a, a pass or a fail test. You can't score a 90 and be good to go. Instead, you have to score a 100. Get all 10 and do them all perfectly in order to have not been, in order to not be guilty according to the law. And this is even more difficult because a perfect score isn't like this one epic day where everything worked out right. And on that day, you, you didn't have any lustful thoughts. And on that day, you didn't do anything to, to make shame to God's name. You didn't do anything to dishonor your parents and all of the others. And on that day, you, you went to bed knowing you had kept all ten perfectly in the day. That's just one day. It's to have kept them forever. From the day you were born until the day that you die. Even one slip up. And one part of the law brings the unrighteousness of guilt. So what's the conclusion? Verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Who will be righteous because they've been good enough? Who will be righteous because they have kept God's law perfectly? No one. There is not one person that will stand before the Lord in judgment and have God review their obedience to the law and hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter to the joy of your Lord. Instead, if we were to stand before the law, before the Lord and have him evaluate us on the basis of our obedience to the law, we would hear these words. You are guilty. Depart from me. For I never knew you. Now something to keep in mind with this is that really, in our day, there aren't really very many people that try to keep the Ten Commandments to be good. It was a big, big issue in Paul's day, but I don't know anybody like that, do you? Instead, what, what we do in our day is we make up our own moral code. 
And, and the person that will do this, what they'll do is, often they'll, they'll borrow some from Jesus, right? Love your neighbors. Do unto others. And then they may borrow some from the law. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. But only in the very narrowest sense of adultery. But in the end, what it turns out to be is just a mishmash of ideas and personal morality. And if, according to verse 20, no one will ever, ever be righteous because of their adherence to the law that God Himself gave, how much less will a personal, man-made code of morality be able to produce righteousness? It can't. It won't. Ever. Instead, all people are left guilty before God. Now the guilt that the Bible describes here is not a guilt that is dependent on feelings. But it is not a feeling guilty. It is a judicial guilt. Anyone who has ever violated one of God's laws is guilty before God whether they feel bad about it or not. Feeling bad is not the end-all, be-all of whether or not I'm righteous. In fact, I would say, by and large, feelings like that don't matter. The Bible speaks of people searing their own consciences. Our world is filled with people who do all of the things that we've talked about this morning and more and never feel a drop of guilt. And yet the reality is they are guilty before God. They are unrighteous. And they are not good. As we look at, at our world, can't we say that this is the world that we live in? I mean, how often in, in say, just, just look at pop culture. Movies and songs and TV shows. How often is God's name taken in vain in those sort of things? I mean, it, nobody even thinks anything about it anymore. It's so common. Or kids dishonoring their parents. It's, it's expected. It's just kids being kids. I mean, you can't expect kids to be like that. Now... This is kind of a rabbit trail, but a fun thing to do. See what God says about it. Like read Romans 1 towards the end where God lumps in children being disobedient to parents with all sorts of other things. The same sort of level. So God's view of it isn't what the world is. And adultery and sexual immorality in general are so common. I mean that most people don't even consider those things to be sinful anymore. Sex outside of marriage is... I mean, it's mostly a foregone conclusion. People are going to do that. They're going to move in together. I mean, adultery is so common that there are websites built around hooking up and having an adulterous relationship. And it's not even shameful or, or problematic for anyone. But this stuff isn't just common in Hollywood or 
in the songs or in D.C. I mean, all this stuff is, is common right here in our town. We don't have to look at TV to, to find this. We see it every day in our own community. But, but to meddle again, don't we, I mean, don't we honestly, don't we see some of these things even in our hearts at times? I mean, if we were to just all look at the Ten Commandments, all ten, wouldn't our hearts condemn us because we have not kept them in some way? We have not done what we should have done. Every day, life demonstrates the guilt and the unrighteousness of all of humanity. So can anyone be good without God? No, no one is good without God. No one does good without God. Everyone is guilty before God. And that leaves us in a tough spot. What can we do about it? Well, there's a reason that Paul is so brutal and so plain. In verses 9 through 20. He knows that people must understand. That they are not good. And they are unrighteous. Before they will ever really look to Jesus. That leads to what Paul lays out next. Everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. The unrighteousness and guilt of mankind leaves us unable to be good on our own. The only way our unrighteousness and guilt can be overcome is through Jesus. That's the whole point Paul is making in verses 21 through 26. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That there is a righteousness That's not from adherence to the law, but it comes from God. And the law and the prophets always talked about the day that would come with this. And it's the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus. And it is on all, it is to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. So, no one is righteous. But everyone can be made righteous, right? No matter who they are, no matter whether they broke all ten commandments before breakfast, no matter whether they did all of those unrighteous acts by lunch, everyone can be made righteous through Jesus if they believe there's no difference. Why is there no difference? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Of God. All of us have fallen short. And what it took for God to save me is exactly what it takes for God to save you and for God to save anyone else. There is no one that God cannot save if they will believe in Jesus. This salvation is open to all and available to all if they will believe. Right? And that's the key. They have to believe in Jesus. They must turn from their sins and they must turn to Him. And they must take hold of the cross because it is the cross of Christ that makes this 
possible. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath against our sin. He, he took the punishment that we deserve, right? So, so if we have done, and, and we have, we have done all of these unrighteous acts. Jesus' death on the cross was because we are unrighteous. And that unrighteousness is seen in a variety of ways. Jesus went to the cross because we have broken God's law again and again and again. And His death paid the penalty that our violation of the law demanded. You see, God... God will never excuse sin. Man, that's a big thing. God doesn't excuse sin. Not in you, not in me, not in Billy Graham, not in Mother Teresa, not in anyone. I really think this is a huge thing for us to grasp. And I know... Probably we've all got it. We've all grasped this. But in case we haven't or we maybe we know someone that hasn't. It is so common to hear people maybe say something like, God's good and so He's going to let me by. Like the, God loves me and so He's going to kind of pass me under. But that's not how it works. God is good. And God does love you. But God is also just And the justness of God demands that sin be punished. Now, we know this on a natural level, I think. But when we when we see stories in the news of someone doing something horrific and then getting, I don't know, two, three months of jail time and then getting off, something within us rises up and says, that's not right. Right? I mean, we, we know, and when the judge gives them such lenient sentences for, for rape or murder or any number of other things, something within us says, that judge is not right. He's not a good judge. He's not just. I'm reminded of a story that I read about, I think it was at the beginning of this year. I don't know if I, I think I told it in Sunday school, but not in church. There was a girl Went to Falls Creek Church Camp. She was raped. Brutally raped. By a guy that came with one of the churches to be a cook. And he got no jail time for it. The prosecutor entered a plea. And he just got probation. And the judge approved it. So he he brutally raped this young teenage girl. He didn't do not a minute of jail time for it. There was such an outcry that the DA... That approved it. The DA that did it had to resign. The judge was being pressured to resign. There's a whole campaign to vote him out in that county. And I, I suspect he's going to be voted out. Why? Why was there such outrage? Because he did something vile. And the punishment didn't fit the crime. And the prosecutor was not just in doing that. And he was not good. And neither was the judge. And if God were to look at your sin or mine. Or anyone else's and say. I'll just let you go. It's not that big of a deal. I'm going to let you slide. He would be unjust. 
He would be as unjust, if not more unjust, than the judge who let the rapist off. And God is just. He will never excuse sins. But He will forgive them. If we turn to Jesus Christ. If we call on Him to save us. If we believe. We will be justified. It says. And the idea of justification is that God declares a believing sinner to be righteous. So can a person be good without God? Absolutely not. Thanks to Jesus, there is hope. No one is good without God. But everyone can be righteous through faith in Jesus. I wrestled with how to bring this message to an end today. On the, on the one hand, I want to press in and say, be sure you're right. And, and certainly, be sure you're right. Be sure you are trusting in Jesus to make you righteous. Be sure you are not depending upon your natural righteousness, your natural goodness, or your moral code or adherence to the law. Be sure you are trusting in Jesus. But I want to bring it home in a different way today. Because here is kind of where the rubber meets the road. It is one thing to say all people are unrighteous. All people are guilty. But as believers who have lost loved ones, it is something different to say, my son, my daughter, my brother, my parents, my grandchildren, they are unrighteous. They are guilty. The easiest thing for any of us to do is to say, yes, this applies to everyone, but in the back of our mind, make a mental exception to the people we care about. And I think it's because we can't bear the thought, the fact that they are unrighteous, that they are guilty, and that they they will not be in heaven. They will face the justice and the wrath of God. But that's not love. And that's not kindness. And that's not compassion. That is cruelty of the highest form to recognize the unrighteousness of their life, the guilt because of their sin, and then to tell them you're okay is to condemn them to eternal hell. Our affirming them does not save them. Only Jesus saves. 
Our opinion of them does not save them. Only Jesus saves. Our love for them does not save them. Only Jesus saves. It's uncomfortable and as heart-wrenching as that is to think about. We must embrace that honestly. And I know we're going to push back and say, well, I don't want to judge. Well, don't judge. Just look at the fruit of their life. And what do you see? Do you see the life of Jesus or do you see what we've talked about this morning? And if you see what we've talked about this morning, then, then you're not judging by saying something's not right in their life. Right? Because even if by chance they believe in Jesus and live like this, that's not right. I mean, that's not the way a believer is supposed to live. So in love, in compassion, in kindness, in an understanding of salvation and eternity, we, we must press Jesus to them. We must pray for their salvation. We must invite them to church. And as uncomfortable and as hard as it may be, we must tell them about Jesus. We must. When Lizzie was getting ready to come home from the hospital, a guy I've known forever was in a hospital. Down the road. He was. All this stuff was. Was him. My dad. Asked me to go see. Because he probably wasn't going to make it out of the hospital that time. And. Uh, I went. I came in and. His family I knew probably didn't want a preacher to, to visit there. But I went in and there was nobody there. It was just me and him. Boy, he was glad to see me. Hadn't seen me in so many years. And your dad talks about you. And, and I had three or four really good opportunities that God gave me to turn the conversation to spiritual things. He even said once, I, I just don't know if I'm going to make it out of here this time. And what a chance. Are you ready? Are you ready to go? And like a coward, I didn't do it. And once those opportunities were up, his family came in. And they made a point to not let me talk about spiritual things. They, they guided the conversation away from that consistently. Lizzie got discharged the next day. We came home. He died. I, I am bothered by that in ways I cannot fully express. I hope by chance he was saved. But if he wasn't, I just glad handed him to hell because I was afraid.
do not want to do that again. That is not something we want to have on our conscience. It is not love. And it is not kindness. To tell someone who lives like we've talked about today that they're okay. Kindness and love is telling them about Jesus and their need for Him. And a difficult conversation now that saves a soul would be far better than, un- than lots of time of there being no uncomfortable conversations and regret and wonder later. Let's bow our heads. Close our eyes. I just want to give us a time to pray today. We all know people. If they just outright don't know the Lord, we sure can't see that they do in their lives. Let's use this time and let's just pray for them. Let's pray for their salvation. Let's pray that God would give us opportunities to share Jesus with them. Let's pray that God would open their eyes to see their desperate need for Christ. Father, I love you today. I'm sorry for the opportunities I haven't taken. I'm sorry that I just haven't been what you want me to be sharing the gospel. Forgive me. Cleanse me and help me, Lord. Father, you know today who's on our hearts and who we're burdened by. God, it is so common for people to think that they are okay with you just because they can point out a few good morals or they follow a moral code that they've created and our hearts our hearts want that to be true because we love them and we care about them God help us to to let your word reign over that desire and Lord just just to see See people like Moody saw people, Lord, as souls, precious souls that are going to spend eternity in hell apart from Jesus. Give us opportunities this week to talk to people about you. 
When the opportunities arise, give us courage to take it. Give us the words to say. Father, save the folks that we've been praying for today. Work in their lives and bring them to Jesus. Let your spirit bring deep conviction. Let them tremble under the weight of of the condemnation that comes through unbelief and sin. But, oh God, let them see Jesus calling to them to come and lay their burdens down. Let them turn to Him and be gloriously and radically saved. I love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray today. If we could have our musicians, or our musicians and our ushers come forward at this time.